Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Stephen Liu and Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm Dr. Narjus Duma. I'm a thoracic oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and I'm your host for this episode for Lung Cancer Concert. I'm grateful today to have Dr. Alfredo Adeo and Dr. Helena Yu joining me. Dr. Adeo is a senior oncologist at the Geneva University Hospital in Geneva, Switzerland, and Dr. Yu is a board-certified medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Catherine Cancer Center in New York. Dr. Sardell and you, thank you for making the time to be here today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Same. Thanks for having me. Also a pleasure. So today with Dr. Yu and Dr. Adele, we have one or two more boards, and we are going to talk about EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Understanding that not all information can be shared in a podcast and that every patient is unique and that there are several factors that we take, uh, we, we take into account to make treatment recommendations. We're going to do the best to do this virtual tumor bird. So this is a 41-year-old woman without past medical history. She's a never smoker. She presents with a dry cough, chest pain, and weight loss to her primary care physician. She's initially diagnosed with allergies and um, later on pneumonia and treated with antibiotics, a bureau inhaler without improvement of the symptoms. This bronze a checks as ray that shows a large right lower lobe mass and a fracture of the ninth rib. The primary care is very concerned due to the findings of the checks as ray and then proceeds with a chest CT that shows again this now five centimeter, centimeter right lower lobe mass with mediastinal Peatracheal and supracurricular leaf node. Additional, you also can see in the CT scan the fracture of the rib. Subsequently, she um, underwent a PET scan that shows one liver lesion, bone metastasis in the thoracic spine. The brain MRI is negative for brain lesions or metastasis. A biopsy of that thoracic spine metastatic lesion is done and it shows adenocarcinoma alone origin. Is TTF1 positive with PDO1 at 0%. I know Dr. Yu and Dr. Adele for a while, so I'm going to be referring to them as by first name. So, Helena and Alfredo, now that you have this information about the patient and the patient is referred to your clinic, what will you do next? And I'm going to start with Helena. Sure. Um, uh, you know, just like the primary care doc is concerned, I'm also concerned. Obviously, this is a new diagnosis of lung cancer. I think first, if I saw her in clinic, I'd want to know sort of how she's feeling, a, a little bit of history about kind of her, her symptom course, how she's feeling now, you know, just to know if there's anything acute or more emergent that I have to deal with. And then after that, you know, we're talking about what the best way to treat this is. And of course, we're going to go through, you know, the, the general explanation of her disease and her stage and, and everything that's going on. And then, you know, the, the thing that's most important with this never smoker is wanting to get molecular testing for her to help guide our treatment. Thank you, Helena. And Alfredo, this patient is in your clinic. 
what will you do next? Yeah, I yeah, but I think I of course can only echo what Helena just said, uh, and of course the most important thing at the moment to uh, to determine which treatment we should be offering is definitely to do a molecular testing. And again, I'm um, in my situation. I don't know about you guys. I think I'm kind of lucky here, and vast majority of the patient see me once the testing has been done and is very very often done. It's a sort of reflective test, so it, it happened rarely, mainly second opinion, where somebody comes to see me without molecular testing performed at the time by or biopsy, but and which is, uh, of course, um, I'm lucky and fortunate to have this uh, here. But in, in the case I see somebody without uh, you know, molecular testing, particularly somebody at that age with no smoking history, I would certainly push as much as I can to have molecular testing done. So I'm going to move around that answer, Alfredo. So just to understand a little bit about your practice. So the patients come already with the molecular testing resulted when they come to see you? As quick as possible. For the vast majority, yes. So what happens is for the vast majority of the patients that get referred to at least to my hospital to see a chest physician or very often chest physician in the city, all the path lab knows and when it's the there's a diagnosis of normal cell and cancer. If it's uh, normally adeno, but sometimes it's squamous. But for the vast majority of adenocarcinoma, they get the molecular testing performed routinely. Irrespective of the, of the staging, which is something we might want to discuss, but irrespective of the staging, they do as a reflective test and they do all the, like the NCCN panel, so with the at least eight genes. Okay. I know we're diverting a little bit from the case, but Helena, and your institution, do they come with the molecular testing already done? No, I was going to comment, Alfredo, you are very lucky. That is, I think, a more unusual case in the U.S., but certainly even at MSK, that, that's quite unusual. Pathology, obviously, we would have available before we see them. We have some parts of the molecular that are done. So there are the IHC tests, like the PDL one which we know for this patient. Kind of reflexively, the only tests that are done are ALK IHC, and we do have a quick test for EGFR and KRAS. So I, you know, I think that for most patients, I'll have that information, which certainly could be helpful, but we, we, we would not have kind of full next generation sequencing done before they come back to see us. I think if I may, part of it is also related to the fact that Geneva, it's a city and it's a big city for Switzerland, but it remains relatively small city. So it's 250, I guess, thousand people. So it's big, but not huge. Therefore, the volume of patients uh, seen and treated and analyzed is not comparable to what we would see in a big city. Well, thank you for sharing that. So returning back to the case, so we both of you will order biomarker or NGS. So unfortunately, this patient, the 41-year-old female with newly diagnosed lung cancer, continues to lose weight. She, the cause is persistent, and now she has intermediate hemoptysis. The pain is becoming more challenging to treat with opiates because the somnolence, and she is the primary caregiver of her two young daughters. So the two of you, understanding what's happening that the patient is deteriorating, molecular testing is cooking. What will you do next? And now that the patient is deteriorating, how do we change your management? And this time you're going to start with Alfredo. Again, I, I think 
clearly, even, even, I mean, if whether I have or I don't have the test, of course, if I have the test results, I will start straight away with the treatment. But even if I know that the treatment might be incredibly effective, I will certainly, I will certainly consider some radiotherapy treatment for the pain, particularly for the rib. I would certainly prescribe some painkillers. And I, again, I'm a bit lucky because I work close to close with our palliative team. I would definitely get the palliative team on board as we also have service which is at home service so that the patient can also be seen at home by nurses and we can all activate these uh, sort of system to help the patient even once the patient is at home and can be seen by a nurse so i would definitely refer the patient to see my palliative care colleague start some painkillers consider your therapy to the rib and of course if i have the uh, results will start straight away the interest and kinesis inhibitor treatment what about you, Helena? How now, you know, fortunately, we don't have these auctions and in, in the U.S., the nurses to the house. Yes, I was just I was going to say, I'm jealous. Of- Sorry, guys, I'm not I'm not showing off. We're just <laughs> you really are showing off. I think this universal health care, you know, is you're making us uh, jealous. That's for sure. But I echo everything that Alfredo said. I think that, you know, supportive care early in the diagnosis we know is, of course, helpful for quality of life, but also for you know, improving and enhancing survival for our patients. So that um, totally agree. I think, you know, exactly like he said, exploring kind of radiotherapy for a symptomatic, you know, sort of bone metastases, getting social work involved to kind of help with her, of course, I'm sure complex psychosocial situation with being 41 with two young kids. But then, you know, because of her symptoms, you know, I, I don't know about you, Narjus, but for us, you know, NGS can take three plus weeks to come back. So, I, you know, I'm not feeling excited about waiting for that if I don't have results at hand. So I'm thinking about what, you know, what do I have more immediately in terms of treatment? So I'm thinking, you know, about chemotherapy, to be honest. And I think, and I'm interested to hear your two practices on this, but if I have a patient where I have a very high pretest probability that they will have a driver mutation and that at some point I will be transitioning to a targeted therapy, I tend to do my first cycle with just cytotoxic chemotherapy alone and withhold the immunotherapy until I have those results. But definitely curious to hear what your thoughts are about that. So I, that's what I was going with the question. So in this case, the patient is clinical, clinically deteriorating. I would do one cycle cytotoxic therapy, no immunotherapy at all. I'm just worried that you know she's having these hemoptysis and the radiation and the opiates are necessary, but NGS then to take some time to come back. So that was the concern. Alfredo, will you do this back home, like back where you are about giving one dose of cytotoxic therapy before you wait for the NGS? So it's a good point. And I think it's reasonable when you know that you're going to wait for two, three weeks at least to get a report back. I think it's reasonable to start with some chemotherapy treatment. And I would not give chemo IO, I would definitely go for chemo. I think it's, it's, it's a reasonable choice. And I don't know, I guess on these, maybe in the States, I guess you are definitely much better than Europe in terms of liquid biopsy, so I guess something. And, and I don't know whether you have something in-house that might with a shorter turnaround time. One thing we could do here, as we have developed these, we can do a quick liquid biopsy, but only for you know, PCR for um, EGFR. We wouldn't be able to get the results of a food panel. So in, I've done it a few times and I got lucky once or twice. 
once we've done a liquid biopsy specifically for the EGFR. So if somebody has an ALK mutation or RET or whatever, we will not, uh, of course, detect it. But at least we would detect the lesion 19 and the, the mutation on the exome 21. And we have a turnaround time of about 24 to 48 hours, but only for the EGFR. So in this case, I would probably, if I, I didn't have the EGFR, if I didn't have the NGS, I'd probably explore this um, in-house liquid biopsy panel only for the EGFR. But again, in case of negative result, I would certainly start with chemotherapy while waiting for the full panel to, to get back. Thank you for sharing that, Alfredo, because actually, as we were talking there, the pathologist was trying to call you and say, I'm sorry, the bone biopsy was decalcified and we lost DNA. So it is not optimal for NGS. So now the biopsy that we're waiting, unfortunately, there is no DNA to run next gene sequencing. So Helena, what will you do in this case, right? We know the patient is deteriorating. We give her one cycle chemo and we were refreshing to get the NGS as fast as possible, but unfortunately it's not possible now because we don't have DNA. So what would be your step, Helena, in this case? Yeah, I, I think that obviously disappointing, you know, to be waiting for those and, and, and not have those available. But I, I'm glad that we started our treatment for our patient. Um, and hopefully she's already feeling better with the different interventions that we have put in place. So I do think we have a little bit of time now because she's on active treatment that hopefully is controlling her disease. And so exactly like Alfredo said, I would want to, at the very least, um, send off a, a liquid biopsy because, you know, obviously that is um, often, you know, sort of a good way to screen and, and um, look for these driver mutations. And then, I, to be honest, I would also be, you know, we've already started treatment. I'm wondering whether that liquid biopsy will be sufficient. So I, I would also be thinking about maybe this would be a case where I'd want to repeat the tumor biopsy as well. But first, you know, obviously liquid biopsy, attempt that first, but know that there would be a chance that I might have to repeat that tumor biopsy. And as you get the liquid biopsy done, Helena, we found an EGFR in-frame deletion in exon 19. So we now know that this patient, the 41-year-old female, has EGFR shredding DNA and, and plasma. But would that be enough for you, Helena, to start first-line therapy? Because the only thing that we have is the liquid biopsy. Yes. I, I mean, I think that there are good data now that the positive predictive value of these tests are very high. So I think they're not always sensitive. So I think that a negative result would not make me just resign that this patient doesn't have a driver, but, but I do feel like I have good confidence in a detection, a positive result. So I think I would feel very comfortable starting her on an EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And, and typically, if not on a clinical trial, our standard is osimertinib. And if I may, would you, because I agree with you, totally with, with you, but the question is, in this situation, would you add the ozimedinib to the chemotherapy or would you switch to ozimedinib or you wait? I mean, I imagine you wouldn't wait, but would you wait to get to cycle of chemo if she's doing well, you would continue just with chemo? I know probably this is uh, less likely. But would you just add the ozimedinib or would you switch to ozimedinib? I actually, I think it's a great question, Alfredo. I think that it sort of depends on, for me, it depends on how somebody, you know, because the situation happens, of course, and, and it, it might not be EGFR, we might find a medic exon 14 or something else. And so how I weigh that typically is how the patient's feeling, um, how they tolerated chemotherapy, 
if their symptoms are improving and then what the driver is. And so, you know, my thought is if I've only done one cycle, she has say an ALK or an EGFR mutation that has just a extraordinary kind of targeted therapy that I know she'll have an excellent response to, I tend to switch quicker. I just think the overall kind of longer term outcomes are better with that. And, and I would switch. I wouldn't add on. I think adding on chemo is very intriguing. And I'm definitely looking at, you know, looking forward to those clinical trials about sort of the results of that. But I think I would switch her. I wouldn't do that off study. So I would switch her to osimertinib. But I think if she had, say, or a different patient had a Medexon 14 alteration or something where, I, I'm, you know, the, the response rates are not as robust and I'm not, you know, if I'm if she's the person is clearly responding to what I'm doing, then that is a situation where I would kind of wait two cycles, do my restaging, and might just finish the four cycles, you know, if someone's doing great and they have a great response. But curious to hear what you guys think. If I, I mean, I would do the same, frankly. So I would probably do exactly the same, particularly if for one cycle I would switch to a medanib. But again, if it was a medexone skipping mutation, I'd probably given the data we've seen, I would probably, and if, if I got the impression that clinically there is a benefit uh, on chemo, we'll probably wait a bit longer to see whether uh, whether I should be using lots of second line. But on this, in this situation, uh, for DJ5, the one cycle, we'll definitely switch straight to osimertinib. So along those lines, now the patient is on osimertinib thanks to the results of the liquid biopsy. So Alfredo and your institution, how often would you re-scan patients like this and more tricky to answer, do you follow patients like these patients with liquid biopsies to see if there's any potential new clones coming up? I, um, I'll answer straight away the second part. So no, I don't follow patients up with liquid biopsy. As uh, for liquid biopsy, we still have, um, there are some data, but also in, in my institution, I don't think with liquid biopsy, we could do that. We don't have that facility to uh, follow patients up with that. Um, so definitely I wouldn't. For the Timing of scanning, I normally do a scan relatively quick because I think that after two months, if, you, if the patient has responded, if there's a benefit, there's also something radiologically clearly you know, evident on the scan. So I'll do after two months. And then I'll do every two to three months, very often three months if everything is okay and clinically well. And this is my experience, vast majority of the patient who respond normally. Normally, I mean, you can clearly wait three months from one scan to the other, unless there's any clinical symptoms, any problem. You, you, you know, I tend to be kind of guided by uh, the clinical presentation and symptoms. So first one after two months to see whether there's a response or not. And after that, normally it's every three months. Uh, so this is more or less what I do. So Helena, this, do you follow patients with liquid biopsies at your institution, particularly the patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer? Yeah, it, I think it's a great question, research question. So, you know, I don't, I don't routinely follow patients, but I'm very interested in this. I think that EGFR CT DNA clearance has really kind of shown itself to be a, a good biomarker. So I think, you know, we know that clearance of, so when we think about it, about 75% of patients will end up clearing their CT DNA at three or six weeks if you check after starting osimertinib. But for that 25% that don't clear CTDNA, we know that their progression-free survival and overall survival are much shorter, only 10 months uh, of the median PFS for those patients. And so I do think it is something that should, you know, we might potentially be looking at in the future. We have a clinical trial at MSK that is 
taking those patients that don't have clearance of EGFR CTDNA on osimertinib, and then um, then basically randomizing them to continuing osimertinib with close surveillance versus adding in chemotherapy at that time. Because I do think it is a quick way to kind of um, risk stratify patients and potentially escalate care for higher risk patients. And so I think that I'm hoping that that's something that we might be able to use in the future. Thank you to both of you. So now the patient benefit for targeted therapy for around 14 months, but unfortunately there is a liver lesion and the restaging scans that is growing. So this is the liver lesion we initially saw, 1.5 centimeters. The rest of the disease is under control, the lung, the bone metastasis. So Helena, how will you approach this scenario for this patient? Yeah, I think that this is not, you know, with targeted therapies, in particular EGFR targeted therapies, this is a pretty, you know, not uncommon occurrence where we see the majority of disease continues to be controlled on TKI, but there's sort of one subclone that perhaps has escaped and we see sort of evidence of growth. So, you know, in this situation, I would tell her, you know, I would obviously be wanting to reassure her and I would refer her to one of my kind of colleagues to be considered for either radiation or embolization or something to address the liver lesion that is growing. And then my thought would be to continue the osimertinib since the, if I address that one growing lesion and everything else is controlled, she certainly could get additional time on the osimertinib. And so, I Fredo, was, yeah, sorry. Ahead. No, no, I would just say, would you consider a biopsy? I mean, I agree with the principle to treat the oligoprogressive cancer or the oligoprogressive bits, would you consider a biopsy? Because I would do exactly as you suggested. So I would treat the local progression. I would want to know the mechanism, if I could, yeah. the mechanism of resistance, although it might not necessarily have an impact because the vast majority of the patient, unfortunately, I mean, at least in my practice, even with the biopsy and the analysis, they don't come back with uh, activable or targetable um, you know, um, lesion, and I have to then switch to other treatment. But in this case, I would go for a therapy, but I would probably do a biopsy if I could. Yeah, I agree would with you. Do you guys do? Okay. Yeah, I think that I always like, you know, I, you know, I and I think my patients like to have things lined up. I think that, you know, you've told the patient that she's progressed. You, give, you know, you've reassured her, you've given her a plan. But I think saying, you know, we're also going to look and see what changed in the tumor to make, you know, to that can potentially explain this growth in this one lesion. So if there were to be growth again, you know, this is sort of what we would do next. And I agree with you, Alfredo, that I think we don't often, you know, I think it's more rare with osimertinib, unfortunately, that we find something that is targetable, but I think it happens often enough that, you know, uh, it makes sense. And perhaps with this, you know, the, we'll, we'll do the biopsy and the, radi- and the IR, the interventional radiologist is, can put in a fiducial to help with radiation anyway. So I think it, it could be sort of part of the process anyways. Thank you. I, I agree with both of you. I will biopsy, rebiopsy this liver lesion if it's doable. But it, local therapy is what we will do in a patient with systemic disease. So as the time moves forward in this case that we continue to discuss, is a 41-year-old female with EGFR mutant, no small cell lung cancer. She's an osimertinib. But 24 months after receiving therapy in osimertinib, the disease has progressed systemically. So the lung lesion, the lymph nodes, and the bone lesions. So Alfredo, unfortunately, we're in this situation now with this young woman. What would be your next line of therapy after progression in osimertinib? Yeah, unfortunately, this is something that we all see. 
again, I think we have already touched upon it. I would uh, try to biopsy to see whether whether we can detect anything we can uh, target with some tyrosine kinase inhibitor, although this is uh, more rare, as has been mentioned by Helena. And I think that's, I think there's something, unfortunately, that we all know. So let, let's assume biopsy done and not, you know, targetable mutation. My, and uh, there are two options in my institution at the moment. One is to be recruiting that trial. We have um, a trial with the Rupiotrasium Oncology Platform, where we're testing chemotherapy and immunotherapy together. Or, but this is a trial, or the alternative would be to go for standard platinum-based chemotherapy. So I would use platinum, could be cisplatin, depending on situation of plasma attraction. That would be my standard of care. So at your institution, you would do, like out of the clinical trial, it will be only be chemotherapy for patients like this one? I, yes, I would not go for the Empower 150 style sort of trial when you combine chemo Avastin and, um, and immunotherapy, I wouldn't. I would talk to the patient, explain why I would not, but I would go for platinum-based chemotherapy treatment. So Helena, in your case, at the time of progression, I have to say I use the Empower 150, which is a quadruple therapy. Often in these patients, what will be your next line of therapy? Yeah, I think it's we're, we're heading into a gray area where I think there isn't a clear consensus. And, and as you can see, even between the three of us, we would do different things which are all reasonable. I'm intrigued with Empower 150. I do think that when you actually look at the subset of patients that had sensitizing EGFR mutations, it is a quite small, less than 50 sort of number. So I think we do need to see sort of confirmatory data. And of course, you know, the Keynote 189 using platinum pemetrexid and pembrolizumab, that study excluded patients with EGFR mutations. And so again, awaiting the data to see about whether that combination makes sense. And so I actually would do what Alfredo suggested, where I, I usually do carboplatin, pemetrexid, and you know I think that I often consider bevacizumab for my patients, but that would be usually my go-to cytotoxic chemotherapy at this point, if not I think, yeah. I think something scary about the Einbauer 150, more than scary in the limber numbers, is a very toxic regimen. I think the, the taxin has a lot of toxicity and not only acute toxicities, but long-term toxicity to these patients. And it can be challenging. Even if the patient is 41, the Einbauer regimen, the first dose, the second dose, but after that can be very challenging for patients. I agree. And there are several challenges for me, at least for this drug, for this um, combination, first of all, because you know, there's a person, a patient moving from one pill a day to four drugs together, mm-hmm. and uh, and second, the time that the patient will have to spend in the chemo suite, so it's it's a long regimen to be delivered. Third, some of the side effects. Uh, it's not just because you know chemotherapy sadly comes with side effects, but particularly the at least in my patient in this group of young female alopecia. So hair loss plays an important part. And once we discuss side effects, and I honestly say I maybe I could go towards carbotaxel, avastin, and immunotherapy, but I'm not sure it would be necessarily better than platinum-based penetraxin. And we go through the side effects. Vast majority, I won't say all the patients, but the vast majority is happy to just go with uh, chemotherapy, carbopem, or cispem, depending, and, and nothing else. So I think side effects, this regimen plays an important, important role. You know, I think it's something that I discuss quite intensively with my patients. So 
I think the consensus is that the next line of therapy in patients with EGFR mutinosmal cell lung cancer should include a platinum-based therapy, plus minus bevacizumab. The immunotherapy benefit has been questioned many times. So in patients in which they're only going to receive cytotoxic therapy, meaning no immunotherapy, I'm going to start with Helena. Will you keep the EGFR TKI, the osimertinib? Because in some cases, and this is a gray area and a controversial area, but we want to share difficult cases like this and difficult questions like this so our listeners can hear from the experts. So Helena, will you keep the EGFR TKI in a patient that goes to carboplatin premetrexib, for example? Yeah, I mean, these are, these are the difficult gray areas, but they also happen all the time in our patients. And so I think great to, to hear diversity of opinion. I actually don't have a set practice. I think it depends. I was just say it depends. I think, you know, if there is a patient that has one of the things that criteria I use is if a patient has a central nervous system involvement, so brain metastases or, or you know, leptomeningeal disease, something there, that would be a person where I would, abs- and, and say, you know, with osimertinib, that disease is controlled, but the systemic disease has begun to grow. That would definitely be a case where I would universally, with all my patients, continue the osimertinib and add in the chemotherapy. I think it becomes a little bit more unknown when uh, the patient has systemic disease only, you know, and, and there's some small amounts of progression. I think all of us are aware of the impressed data from earlier generation TKIs with gefitinib and adding in chemotherapy and, and really not seeing a benefit with continuing gefitinib. So, you know, I think in that case, it depends. I usually, if I, you know, I kind of discuss with my patients, you'd be surprised and I'm curious to hear what you say, but my patients are very wed to their EGFR TKI and it's very hard to convince them to stop it. And so sometimes I would say, you know, I'm not sure how you're going to tolerate chemotherapy. So at the very least, let's hold off on it for a few cycles going to get you settled into chemotherapy. And then if I am going to continue it, sometimes I would, you know, add it in with say cycle two or three after I know that, that, you know, they're not having significant issues. Because I think although it is, you know, not a huge thing, I would say that toxicity is somewhat increased with, you know, the maintaining of the osimertinib. Sometimes you see a little bit more cytopenias, particularly thrombocytopenia. So, you know, I don't think it's something that I universally do for everyone, but I think for the right patient, I do continue it. What about you, Alfredo? Do you keep the TKI in these cases if the patient is in chemotherapy only? Yeah, I think I can only echo what Helena said about the uh, brain involvement. So if a patient, and again, I, I don't think we're, we're talking about very you know, difficult situation and it's not rocket science or evidence-based medicine, what I'm going to say. But yes, if a patient has brain metastasis or CNS involvement and everything is well controlled with osmelanib, um, so there's extra, extra cranial progression. I would be more inclined to continue with osmetinib and, um, and add the chemotherapy. Again, I think there are many, and I could do that here in, you know, in, in Switzerland. There are many countries where you cannot simply do that when there is a, you know, there's no reimbursement. And you, even if you want, you, you cannot. That's, that's why we need trial to prove that, that what we say is really logical and, and is backed up by evidence. But in my practice, so I would, I'm lucky enough to be able to do it. I think, you know, there is, it's a patient individual situation, but I'm seeing more and more patients or more and more practices keeping the EGFR TKI. So as we move forward a little bit, the patient now is in cytotoxic therapy and she's doing well. 
to summarize the case as we now move to learning about how the tumor boards are run at your institutions, this is a 41-year-old female with EGFR mutant TKI. We detected the disease in a liquid biopsy, have osimertinib 24 months, and then now she's in cytotoxic therapy. And we may or may not have continued the EGFR TKI. So before we move a little bit about learning how tumor boards work at your institution, Helena, any upcoming and setting trials for this patient after she may have disease progression on systemic chemotherapy? Because unfortunately, that will occur at some point in time. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, you know, unfortunately, after first-line osmertinib, there are no approved targeted therapies or combinations. And so, you know, a huge area of unmet need and active um, kind of drug development. I'm, you know, the things that I'm excited about, I would say, are, you know, as we mentioned before, we would have biopsied this person after progression on osimertinib. And so one study that we're involved in is the ORCHARD study, which is kind of biopsying patients at osimertinib progression. And then if they have a targetable lesion, say an acquired ALK fusion or RET fusion or MET amplification, we're trying to kind of biomarker select and, and treat patients with different combinations. And so I think upfront after initial osimertinib progression, if there is, you know, some kind of acquired uh, molecular target, it's important to put them on a study that could potentially target that. But then, as we've mentioned, I think that the vast majority of patients will not have an obvious genomic acquired alteration. And so that leaves us with, you know, two-thirds plus of patients where, you know, we don't have anything to guide us. And so I think I'm looking to sort of different agents where, you know, that might be effective kind of irrespective of the presence or absence of an acquired alteration. And so I think that the petrotimab TCAN, the HER3 ADC um, is something that's of interest to me. And then I think that amivantamab, lizertinib data, you know, the, so amivantamab being the MET EGFR by specific antibody, lizertinib being the third generation EGFR TK. Those are probably the two regimens that really the only two that there has been some data for, but also that, that the data are promising. And so I think I'm looking at those two studies and seeing those compounds develop and seeing what happens. So Fredo, what do you see in citing coming the, down the pipeline for this disease after EGFR? I, again, I think um, Helena just uh, given a very comprehensive, uh, you know, summary of what we could do and sadly uh, in my center but i think overall in the whole system we don't have much to offer in terms of trial so i i think those compounds you just mentioned about the two more promising or more advanced probably we'll see i i don't want to raise my hope too much as uh, the the problem we all face uh with these um type of cancer is that patients do extremely well at the beginning and for a year or two or even longer they have pretty much a normal life. And uh, once there's a progression, the, the treatment available are uh, really not many and not particularly effective. So there's a huge unmet need. And I really hope that we're going to see more data, I guess, at the ASCO. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more data because at the moment, I don't think we have really much to offer. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. So now we move to learn about how the tumor boards run at your institutions. I have been in several institutions over time, and some of them range from 7 a.m. on a Monday to 12 p.m. on Friday. So, Alfredo, how is the tumor board at your institution 
do you present all cases? How often do you meet? So we meet weekly. We meet on a Tuesday afternoon and we spend, depending on the case, we spend a few hours. Um, it, we try to present all the first, you know, the first cases, all the new cases, uh, the first presentation. And we normally do not discuss patient in terms of, you know, I don't know what you do, this guy, but if a patient will start with metastatic disease and gets treated, and then there's a progression, it's rare that we bring it back at the tumor board. We might discuss in Among Us, but it's rare that we, we bring it back at the tumor board. So tumor board is mainly a new, new cases, first presentation, whether metastatic or, or local advance or even early. You know, very often we review nodules and, and, and so very early disease and all the patients get discussed. We have three different parts. The first part is the radiological part. So we have three sub you know, the program is divided in three. So the first part is normally the, the small, small nodule or the small lesion or surveillance, and we'll discuss all together. That's, of course, oncologist, chest physician. We have a thoracic surgeon, radiologist. We have nuclear medicine expert, and we have pathology. And I hope I haven't, haven't missed anybody or forgot anybody. And then we have the second part, which is more the results of biopsy. So we'll, patient who had the biopsy could be an EBUS, could be transthoracic biopsy. And the third part is the post-surgical ones. So to decide whether they got to go for adjuvant treatment or whether we can also go some trials in the adjuvant center. And it's uh, weekly, and, um, but we do not normally rediscuss the same cases during the treatment, during the treatment um, pathway. So this happened very, very rarely. So, Helena, how does it work at your institution and how early do you meet or how late? We have a less family-friendly time of 7 a.m. It is once a week. And just like, you know, similar to Alfredo, there is, it is multidisciplinary where, you know, we have medical oncologists, pulmonary, pulmonary, radiology, pathology. It's actually really nice because I think the cases that are discussed, you know, the pathologist reviews the pathology, the radiologist you know, really goes over the imaging uh, with us, which I found was so helpful starting out um, to sort of help with my radiology skills. And then, you know, either the surgeon or the medical oncologist presents the case. But it's actually quite limited. We probably only do two or three cases a week. Unfortunately, you know, our center's huge. There's 23 medical oncologists. And so we would be there all week, all day if we were discussing every single case. So, you know, it's a voluntary thing where if someone has a complicated case that requires multidisciplinary kind of input, um, those go in. So I would say that they're sometimes early stage and then sometimes kind of somewhere in, you know, we're pretty aggressive about different local therapies at, at different points. And so I think there are oftentimes cases where we see oligoprogression and we're wondering, is this something that would benefit from surgical resection or ablation or, or radiation? And so it's just the way to get everyone kind of inputted there. We do also have an oncology meeting weekly where, you know, if there are sort of more treatment, oncologic treatment-based questions, you know, it is a forum where you can always kind of um, phone a friend. But, and then, you know, we, we definitely have emails flying around every week of, you know, I have this case, what should I do? And so I think there's a lot of informal sort of uh, checks in. Yeah, well. if, I, if I may, first of all, is it legal 7 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> I'm joking, but 7 o'clock? Gosh, is it 
We're all going to move to, we're all going to move to Europe. Yeah, like, it's so cool. Don't, yeah, don't, 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 like, I have a new job, yeah, Please, uh, <laughs> don't, don't let my boss, you know, hear these podcasts because seven o'clock in the morning, it's not a good idea. But anyway, wow. Let, yeah. Can I, can I just say that we used to have three 7 a.m. meetings and now we are down to seven and a 7.30 and that is with years of kind of pushing for all of us young faculty with, you know, families and okay. kids. Wow. Um, uh, uh, yeah, but, I, yeah. You know, respect, first of all. Um, um, <laughs> the, the, wow. The second thing, it, it will never work in Europe. And sorry, I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying this quite proudly. I'm very happy it will never work in Europe at seven o'clock. It's, it's a no-go. Even in Switzerland, where we start quite early, but seven o'clock would be impossible. The second comment I want to make is just, of course, by being a smallish center, we can discuss pretty much all the cases, which it, it, this is also done for registration purpose. So the idea is to is try to centralize uh, the registration so we have data at the end of the year, because what happens sometimes when we do not go through the tumor board is that patient get discussed outside, which is fine, we'll do that. But even if the patient has been discussed outside, we want it to be presented just to register the case so it helps with, you know, volume and workload to understand where we are, what we're doing every year. So this is, another, this is the other logic behind it. But we definitely don't do it 7 o'clock in the morning. No way. <laughs> I really love that the most controversial thing about, <laughs> about this tumor board is that 7 a.m. meetings me. <laughs> are very challenging. <laughs> We all agree in the rest of the treatment of EGFR, mutant nose, mouse cell, lung cancer. We are wrapping up this podcast. I would like to thank all of you for listening. Tune in to find more tumor board series, whether you listen to the podcast, when you're walking, when you're driving. And also, we really like to thank Drs. Alfredo Adeo and Dr. Helena Yu for making the time to speak with me today. Do you have any final words, Helena and Alfredo? No, I mean, it was a joy and pleasure every time, you know, in this crazy time we're in that we get to connect and just kind of talk about cases or, you know, I miss that. So, I, you know, it was a pleasure for me to do it and glad to talk to both of you. Yeah, same here. It was a pleasure to chat with you and to share different, you know, experience and different setting. And, and it's, it's important to remain anyway connected because, you know, I definitely don't want to lose connection with you guys. It's been fantastic. So thank you very much for this opportunity. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you real life and spend a bit of, you know, good time together. So do Alfredo or applications, Helena and I are your way. There you we are, are absolutely welcome. You welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Helena, no 7 a.m. meetings. That's the only thing I needed to hear. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. I can't guarantee that. Can't guarantee about the stuff, but on these, trust me, it, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go and pick you, Helena, and then we take the flight from NY, for um, GFK. So. This is the end of this episode for Lung Cancer Concierge. We hope you tune in the first and third Monday of each month. If you have a case, please send the case our way. We would love to discuss the case in the podcast. You can send it at podcast at ISLC. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it so it can pop up at the top of your friends at Spotify or whatever they listen to their podcast. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. For more on the details involved in treating patients who have EGFR-based lung cancer, especially how to treat until or after the inedible therapeutic resistance, watch the Lung Cancer News Multidisciplinary Forum on EGFR-Based Resistance, moderated by Dr. Katerin Repkam, 
Panelists include Drs. EVI Dagogo-Jack, Dr. Tiziana Leal, Dr. Daniel Chen, and our patient advocate, Sarah Chris. Go to ISLC and select the ISLC News tab. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concerate. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 